Hi, I'm your host, Dave Kemp, and this is Future Ear Radio. Each episode, we're breaking down one new thing, one cool new finding that's happening in the world of hearables, the world of voice technology. How are these worlds starting to intersect? How are these worlds starting to collide? What cool things are going to come from this intersection of technology? Without further ado, let's get on with the show. Okay, so we're joined here today by Kyle Acker. Kyle, tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Sure. Thanks so much for having me on, Dave. Um, I'm the uh, executive vice president of a company called Rise T. So we're a group purchasing organization and managed service organization uh, for otolaryngology offices, which is ear, nose, and throat offices. We really focus on helping to build uh, audiology ancillaries within ENT offices. Um, and our parent company, Odd Connects, works in the audiology and hearing instrument specialist dispensing space as well. So my history is a little bit uh, a little bit different than a lot of people, I think. But uh, I've really come from uh, a background of uh, hearing instrument manufacturing clinic. Uh, I'm actually an industrial hygienist by my original training, which okay. um, is not cleaning teeth in factories as much as people may think. Um, but it's really around health and safety and things like that. So my background's a little bit different, but that's currently what I'm doing is, is heading up an organization that, that helps ear, nose, and throat offices really build great audiology practices that focus on their patients. Awesome. Cool. Well, thank you for coming on today. I think this is going to be a great conversation. Um, you know, the reason I wanted to bring Kyle on is because Kyle's been in the, you know, the hearing care industry for a while now. I think he knows the ins and the outs of it. So uh, we're definitely going to get into some of the technology side. Um, I think some of the ways in which this industry can adapt to sort of our new normal, uh, even as we sort of have things start to open back up, uh, you know, in light of the coronavirus. But before we even get into all that, I would just be curious for from your side of things. Um, so you got into this industry, it sounds like, pretty early on um, and you've been here for a while. So can you share just a little bit of like your journey of how you got into this, where it started, you ended up at Starkey for about 10 years and then now you're at Rise. Um, I would just love to have you kind of just walk us through that, that little journey that you've had, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I'm happy to. It's, you know, what's weird is, you know, I've, I've been chatting with a lot of people about my new role and position and, um, I've, I've always felt myself to be like the kid in the industry. And it's weird <laughs> to hear that change over time. Like the, there's young people in our industry like you, Dave, that are coming and doing great things. And, and, you know, I talk to these, these new audiologists that are fresh out of school. They're 25, 26 years old. They're, you know, I talk to these new reps that are at the hearing companies and everything. And it's just, it's, I'm having like this existential moment <laughs> in my career right now. It's the most bizarre thing, but That's I guess hilarious. they call this a midlife crisis. I'm, <laughs> I'm only 39, but holy cow, I, hopefully I live longer than double 39. But anyway, <laughs> uh, to get back to your, your question. Um, yeah. So uh, I grew up down by where you're based. Um, yep. So I grew up in Southern Illinois. Uh, I grew up on the other side of the river from you. Uh, from, from St. Louis. So we always joke. Fan. It, yeah, absolutely. Uh, we always joke that it was the communist East side, kind of like <laughs> in, in Germany and Berlin, right? So, yeah. uh, so I grew up in Southern Illinois. Um, and for those of you that don't know the area, um, if you go about 15 miles East of St. Louis, so you have the Mississippi River, you go through East St. Louis, not much left there. Uh, but you go 15, 20 miles East and it's farm country. So yeah. I, gr I grew up uh, in the country in a little town called New Baden, Illinois, and, and went to a small high school. There were 97 people in my graduating class. And wow. um, I had the benefit of, uh, you know, I always kind of knew that I wanted to do patient care. Uh, and I am absolutely terrified of giving and taking blood. Um, <laughs> so I knew being a physician was not going to work out well. Uh, so I had the benefit as a high school project of being a, uh, you had to go out and do a job shadow as a senior project in high school. Uh, and most, most of the kids that I went to high school with went and milked cows and you know, <laughs> fed pigs and, and worked on a tractor. 
And I went to the local pharmacy and, um, and I got really interested in being a pharmacist. So um, I applied and luckily my grades were good in high school, even from this little college uh, or from this little high school uh, and got into Purdue University to be a pharmacist. So I started at Purdue. I was woefully underprepared to go to a Big Ten college from New Baden, Illinois and Westland High School, which is now five, six times its size now as the metro continues to grow. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but did do real hot in college right away. Um, decided I didn't want to count by fives for the rest of my life as a <laughs> pharmacist. Uh, I was looking for something that would give me a little bit more direct patient care. Um, so I met a really great uh, advisor at Purdue after I decided to transition out of pharmacy or pharmacy decided to transition me out. We'll, we'll let them decide uh, what the truth is there. But, um, but I had a great advisor named Dave Tate, who to this day, I still speak to him. And he said, you know, you've got all this really great science background from doing, you know, two years of pre-pharmacy, they called it at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this really easy transfer degree for you. And I said, okay, less college, easy transfer, something I might like, tell me about it. And it happened to be in health sciences at Purdue in in a program called industrial hygiene, which is focused around health and safety, like I told you before. And uh, and so I transferred into that. Um, It was housed uh, in health sciences, which was at the time was its own uh, school at Purdue, um, but it it sat between nursing, engineering, and liberal arts almost. Okay. So, so I took classes in civil engineering, and I took classes in uh, nuclear pharmacy, and I took <laughs> class all just these random classes. So I learned a lot about toxicity and mm-hmm. and the body and ergonomics and working with the with the worker um, and so I did a couple really awesome internships uh, one of them was at a semiconductor factory in Florida Palm Bay Florida okay. for a company called Intercell so if you remember do you remember the old like blue box Linksys routers the, yeah, like the first wireless routers right mm-hmm. the blue and black ones so Intercell was a spinoff of Harris Technologies, which is a huge governmental contractor. They make communication satellites and okay. you know, guidance systems for missiles. And they're like a Raytheon or a, you know, yeah. a general dynamics type company. And so they made the original chips that went in the Linksys routers. Very so cool. I worked there for a while and, and did uh, some chemical exposure assessment because they use really nasty chemicals when they're making silicon wafers to turn into chips and stuff like that. And then uh, the next internship I did was with Eli Lilly, a company they have called Alanco. Okay. So Alanco makes animal products. So they make feeds for animals that have antibiotics and stuff in them, which is totally not cool these days. (laughs) Um, But they were kind of one of the first ones, um, that did that and 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 Eli Lilly's a great company in the state of Indiana and um, they're actually working on a COVID vaccine right now and, and making really good progress but um, one of the things when you're making these huge vats of animal feed um, is that these machines that shake down all the antibiotics and stuff into the food are super loud yeah and so uh, they had me do as part of an industrial hygiene externship they had me do a hearing conservation program for the factory. And that's where I first started learning about hearing in depth. Interesting. Um, so my background in audiology and, and hearing aids and all that stuff, totally bizarre, right? Totally different. So anyway, got interested in hearing, went to graduate school to be an audiologist. As part of that, I did, um, I helped run a research lab for Dr. King Chung, who's now at Northern Illinois. Uh, we did some of the first research around uh, using directional microphone technology in cochlear implants, which now is commonplace using noise reduction technology in cochlear implants. So mm-hmm. I learned so much from her. She's awesome. Um, she's a brilliant researcher. Um, and, and I think Purdue uh, really lost somebody great when she transferred over to NIU to start her lab there. But I learned a lot about the scientific process and everything there. So 
So graduated, became a clinician at the American Institute of Balance. So I started doing a lot of vestibular stuff, but still had a passion uh, for hearing technology. Uh, did clinic for about three and a half years and then uh, was picked up by Starkey Hearing Technology. So I was a, first I was a regional trainer at Starkey. So I used to do all the trainings on the technology and stuff. Then I was promoted after seven or eight months to manage the education and training team there. Uh, and then I made a transition over into sales when the mm -hmm. sales team was really looking for somebody that had some strong technical skill um, to help build our, you know, sales talk tracks and things like that. Uh, and then in January, I made the transition over to start this new company, Rise ENT. So it's been a, been a long, crazy ride. I always, yes. I always tell new audiologists, it's like, you want to do something? Find it. You can do it. I mean... I love that though. I love, I love people that have these sort of like meandering roads that lead them here. And you've had this like interesting combination of like you were working at like a semiconductor company, yeah. um, which obviously has led you to being so knowledgeable about, you know, the innovation that's happening within the hearing aids. You've had this whole aspect of the hearing conservation side. I mean, I think that um, I had a conversation with Deanne Rudden and Brian Irvin not long ago where uh, Deanne mentioned that she's been working with like industrial workforces. And I continue to think that I'm like, there's so much opportunity for this profession um, to just better make, uh, you know, different types of, of work settings aware of the need for hearing conservation so that you basically you get ahead of this whole problem um and so i just think that that's so interesting like this background that's culminated into you know your life experience and, and how they've all sort of come together in, in such a unique way and so you said something interesting at the beginning of this like you were like well i you know i i feel like i'm going through a midlife crisis and there's this <laughs> wave of um of people and I just got to say that, you know, for the audience here, the reason that uh, I've gotten to know Kyle over the years is that he did a really good job when I was first starting out with the blog of like, you know, I met him at a conference and, uh, and he supported me and he was like, I'm, I'm reading your blog. And, and that actually really went a long way of helping me to like have confidence and like, okay, so there are some people that are reading this. And I just think it's important that um, for anybody that's young and starting out right now, um, you know, there are a lot of people that were in your shoes 10 years ago, however many years ago, where they are more than happy to help you out and, and lift you up. And I think that Kyle's a good testament of that. And it's cool that we're able to have this conversation now that we've kind of gotten to know each other. And uh, I just think it's cool how it's all kind of come full circle like that. Yeah. And, you know, it's, uh, man, I remember when you first started writing and stuff like, and it, it was great from the beginning. Thanks. Um, and, and, just tons of potential. Uh, but I think one of the things that all of us realize at the very beginning is that, uh, that, um, sometimes you have to, you have to read through some of the marketing speak and you yeah. have to understand the underlying technology to truly be able to, um, understand it and explain it to others around you. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think that's what, that may have been what some of my initial guidance was when, yeah. when you and I first started talking is that, uh, well, it doesn't really work like that. <laughs> no, um, um, it though. sounds good, but, um, but understanding the underlying technology and I, you know, it, it's funny you say that, that, you know, a lot of people have started looking to my Facebook posts, something, you know, I started writing about COVID yeah. and, and how it's affecting the United States and, and, and a lot of people have, and I was doing it just for fun. Like I, right. I need to, I need to digest data it's, and it's understand like cathartic. It. Yeah. For, for me to feel comfortable with it. And so I started writing some things down, uh, back in late February, early March when COVID really started uh, taking off. And, and so a lot of people have started relying on that now yeah. for, for their, uh, information. But one of the things that, I always caution others and I will always is that, look, um, I, anybody is just one source of information mm -hmm. for you and you have, you need to, you need to be a conscious consumer of data and a conscious consumer of information. It's important that you come to your own decisions on, on what is real and what is not. Um, so, 
So that's kind of the, the initial discussions that you and I had. What is it? It's probably been five, six years ago now. Yeah. And, and, uh, and, and look how well it served you. So <laughs> Thanks, I'll pat myself on the back for that, if that <laughs> yeah. piece of advice. Yeah. Well, it's Don't cool. listen to me. I'm yeah, telling right. you. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's so. cool though. It's cool that we can, um, that, you know, I've, I've gotten to build the rapport with you to where it's like, all right, now let's have a conversation over a podcast. And, uh, I just think it speaks to this idea that, you know, going off of what you were saying about writing about COVID is like, I felt really passionate when I first started writing about this, about a subset of the whole industry, which was the technology side. Like I was really, really passionate about it. And I felt like this, this desire where I was like, I, I need to put this into writing and I need to make this public. And I didn't honestly initially it wasn't that big of a deal to me, like how many people were reading it because it was just like, I, I, I felt like it was just my own process of thinking through things. And it's crazy of like how one step leads into the next. And then before you know it, you're like, this is kind of becoming like a thing that I'm doing routinely. And um, so going off of what you were saying with COVID, obviously you've been following this really closely. Quick barometer check. Here we are. It's we're recording this on what is it, May sixth? What's your what's your general sense right now with the the pandemic? I mean, we we don't need to go like too deep into it, but are you? Um, what's your general gist of where we stand right now as somebody that's been following this as close as you have? It, it feels like to me that um, we're right in the middle of it. Um, it's kind of what it feels like to me. Yeah. Um, and, and my concern is I don't, I, so if you look at infection rate um, and, and death rate, unfortunately, um, and if you look at mortality rates, so how many new cases do we see a day? Mm -hmm. uh, how many new deaths do we see a, new, a day? And what percentage of those that test positive die, right? Um, and total population as well. Um, it seems like there has been a plateau. Um, my concern is, um, how long does the plateau last? So mm -hmm. I was hoping that by next week, so I've kind of been saying, you know, I, I feel like the second week of May is, is the turning point on this thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and I said that since early April. Um, wow. I, uh, I, I, I'm concerned that we haven't started to see a decline. Yeah. Um, so when we see a couple days of, of downward trending of new cases, um, we it it then starts to pick up again. So we're getting kind of this sinusoidal wave, which right. which uh, concerns me a little bit because um, the hope was that things would start. You know, in most other countries, what you've seen is that it's come up and it's peaked and then it's started to trail mm -hmm. off a bit in new cases and in total cases. So um, part of the reason why we're, we're seeing a plateau rather than a decline is that I don't think our data sources are doing a really awesome job right now of tracking people that have fully recovered. So yeah. one of the ways that you see a total cases decline is well, if a bunch of people get better, then you deduct that number from the numerator, right? Okay. Yeah, that makes <laughs> so, sense. So if we're not following up on people that get better super well, then it's kind of hard to see total cases decline. Um, but it, it's also that, you know, as a country, we've gotten really tired of social distancing and all mm -hmm. the lockdowns and, and not just tired of it. I mean, people are, are truly suffering. Um, right. There's, you know, I, I just released an article this morning, start, he was, was, um, was nice enough to pick it up on their blog um, about how important it is that people with hearing impairment wear their hearing aids all the time, even when they're at home, because you need to keep your brain activated. Yeah. Alerts and things like that are important. Um, but uh, it concerns me that that we're getting tired of our own medicine a little bit, <laughs> yeah. um, and that you know you see some states like Georgia and Tennessee. Um, go back to what's almost normal. Florida has started to do that as well. One of my friends uh, down in, in the West Coast beaches in Florida, um, they went out to a restaurant last night and the only requirement the restaurant would be at 25% normal capacity mm -hmm. and they had to separate out the table. Um, this is a highly infectious virus. Right. I mean, it's, 
it spreads like the measles. Uh, mm-hmm. Only the measles we now have a vaccine for. We don't have one for COVID, for coronavirus. So, so it concerns me a little bit that our cases are not declining. Um, and I think that um, for us to really recover, that we need to see that. And that was outlined by the president in his in his reopening guidelines. And it seems like we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. So yeah. it concerns me a bit. Too. So um, now tying this back to our industry, right? I think that there's been a lot of, obviously, just like every business uh, out there, I think that there's been this pent up demand of, you know, when can we open and how about how do we actually go about doing that? Um, you know, I, I think that one of the interesting things that's happened with this, and I don't mean that to make light of the situation, but interesting from the standpoint of, um, you know, looking at the longer term picture here is um, I've seen people term this as like the great accelerant, meaning that a lot of the existing technologies that were um, already sort of like undergoing their own maturation, telehealth, um, you know, things such as that remote work in general. Um, These things were progressing steadily and it it appeared as if like down the line we would have a future where telehealth became the new normal. And it's like, I've seen a number of different quotes like um, Satya Nadella over at Microsoft. He said that we've seen more transformation in the last two months than we would have expected in the next three years. So it's this great acceleration of these pre-existing trends. And one of them obviously that applies to this industry is telehealth and and just the notion of conducting remote services for your patients. And it seems like this March, April window in particular was a really good time for people to wrap their heads around what this might look like. And what I wonder is that, um, you know, and this is sort of like a, a loaded question because it, 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 it includes the notion of, of um, the broad context of the whole coronavirus, but as we start to reopen practices again and people start to return to sort of the the old uh, standard of care, right? Like just like what they had been doing pre-virus. I wonder if the telehealth and the, and the understanding that there's a, a real need to implement this, at least to offer it, I think, as an alternative, um, you know, and particularly given the patient demographic that tends to be the one that's being seen that's also the most at risk for this virus it seems um older adults maybe with pre-existing conditions my question to you is do you think that um it's like we've you know made a little bit of progress on this thing that's i think going to be really important to the future of this industry do you think that people are now just going to maybe either forego that or are they going to look at this and say well okay, I'll put that on the back burner and not really attend to it when, in my opinion, I think this is still the time that you need to emphasize this uh, aspect of your business to at least make it viable enough to where if you do have a patient that wants to come see you or at least visit with you, um, but they aren't comfortable with seeing you in person, that you can still service that person. What, what's your thoughts there? Yeah. Um, boy. You're right. That is a loaded question. So, (laughs) (laughs) so unravel that one. Right. So, so COVID is just a good excuse to try telehealth. Yeah. And so just, just because, just because this virus is affecting a lot more people doesn't mean that every single day in a COVID free world, we don't have viruses that can negative or negatively affect the uh, livelihood and health of our target patient demographic, right? So, um, so my hope is that everybody got to practice really hard on yeah. telehealth um, during this crisis because it's it's been mandated and mandatory that they use this technology to see their patients. Now, I always tell. And I've, I've written a bit about on the, about this, um, and I always tell our members and customers that whoever uh, offers the best service and experience to the consumer will win. Um, I to this day, and having been a clinician, I don't believe that there's any that there's an appropriate replacement 
for face-to-face -face contact when working with our current technology in the hearing space with our hearing impaired patients. Yeah. I, I just, telehealth, while it's a great solution um, to help us with some things that we need to do in current times and for uh, at-risk populations in the future, um, it's, it's just not, it's not the same as being face-to-face -face with someone. Um, so if you think about working with someone with a hearing impairment, um, our, our patient demographic is typically older, um, our, even though our patient demographic uh, is getting better at technology, they're still not great at it as a, in general. I know that's a gross stereotype and generalization. As a matter of fact, my 87-year-old grandmother, uh, my dad just bought her an iPad okay. because she couldn't see her grandkids or great-grandkids. Dad bought her an iPad with the LTE because she didn't have internet at her house. Uh, and now she can FaceTime with all of us and she's right. good at it. So, yeah. so you know, it's not, it's not necessary to think that um, an aging population can't learn. It's just in general, they're not as savvy as, say, the innovators, right? Sure. Um, on top of that, um, we have to remember that communication challenges are already present in mm -hmm. our patient population, uh, and adding an extra layer on top of that makes it difficult, right? Mm -hmm. um, so you've got a big chunk. So if we if we look at the bell curve of patients from you know from the innovators to the laggards and the people in the middle are kind of your target, right? Um, I think that telehealth is still a little bit ahead of its time. Okay. But like I started with, I believe that clinics that focus on the consumer, the needs of the consumer, and make care as convenient for everyone will do the best, right? So you've got this middle group of patients that probably aren't ready for full-on telehealth, but um, but can do some small things. And then you've got this group of innovators, you know, the younger folks with hearing loss, the more tech-savvy folks with hearing loss that absolutely love that. Mm -hmm. um, so, and as, and as the technology curve catches up and the patient population catches up to the technology, um, then they will embrace it more. So, um, should you pick up telehealth right now to avoid catching a virus and then put it down later? Absolutely not. Um, because there are patients that you have that their lives are, are challenging and difficult and busy and seeing them for follow-up visits could absolutely be well done via telehealth. Um, do I think that every single patient can be seen or should be seen with telehealth? Not today. Mm -hmm. uh, but now's a really good time for you to learn how to do those things, incorporate it with the patients that would value that service. Um, and then eventually as the technology gets easier, the patient population gets more savvy at using the technology, then it becomes a larger portion of your practice possibly. And then that allows us to overcome our accessibility issues and our, our labor shortage issues. The, the reality is that, you know, one in five Americans get treated for hearing loss with amplification. And there's a number of factors that play into that, but uh, accessibility um, could potentially be one of those and, and, and ease of accessibility, meaning how quickly can we get to those folks? So, um, so telehealth has a promising future. Is it, is because of COVID? Is it, is audiology and dispensing going to turn into a, a telehealth field? Eh, I don't yeah. think so. No, I think that's a really, I think that you'd painted that really accurately. I think you're right. I think that it's something that it will, down the line, you're right. I think that it will appeal to a broader base of people, particularly like you mentioned as the technology gap. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm thinking back to a slide that I have in one of my presentations where, um, you know, to your point, uh, older adults, um, typically it's not that they're, um, like tech illiterate or they um, inherently struggle with this. It's just that they are on the further end of the adoption curve. And that mm -hmm. if you look at a lot of the pre-existing trends, like um, something like internet usage or social media adoption, the fastest growing cohort tends to usually be 65 plus. Mm -hmm. 
granted because they have a smaller base, but that they're, uh, they, they do eventually really adopt it. And I think like your anecdotal point about like you give um, grandma an iPad and you show her how to work it. And it's actually something that they'll probably pick up in time. And so I think that, I think that you make a really good point there though. That is like, um, this is still a good time, I think to, uh, to, to teach yourself this and, and at least give it a chance that it might appeal to some people so that you're prepared as time goes on to make it more available, um, you know, to a wider set of people. So I think that's probably the right approach here is that ultimately face to face consultations um, and just the, especially given the nature of this type of, of, um, consultation where there is usually a language uh, or, or a communication barrier given the nature of why they're coming to see you because they have hearing loss. Um, I think that makes a lot of sense to me. And I think where I want to go with this now is you mentioned, you know, one, one in five Americans have hearing loss. And, um, you know, this, it's something that I think, you know, has flown under the radar a little bit with the general population um, in terms of their knowledge of just how widespread of a problem this is. And you look at some of the new comorbidity data that's been coming out around cognitive decline and uh, just the wide variety of different things that are associated with, um, you know, isolation and um, which is usually a byproduct or sometimes can be a byproduct of the lack of being able to hear people and being able to communicate and just the ability to communicate depreciating to the point where you start to withdraw. And um, so in my eyes, I look at this problem as um, there's kind of multiple things that are going on right now. So you have, um, you know, this, it's a widespread thing that is, uh, we need to figure out a way to, to really combat this uh, spread of hearing loss um, and all the com- comorbidities that are associated with it. But hearing aids for a really long time in, in hearing aids as the uh, primary method of solving and combating this um, has sat around a penetration rate of roughly 20 to 25%. Mm-hmm. And so a big reason why I started Future Ear in this whole thing was that um, I feel as if one piece of the puzzle that is promising that I, I feel, and I think that uh, maybe, you know, some of your experience would um, shed a light on this too, is that the technology side of things is really rapidly advancing now. And I think it started with Bluetooth and actually it probably goes back before Bluetooth, but Bluetooth was a, a catalyst because it, it really tethered the hearing aid to the smartphone and the smartphone's computing power and, and the processing and, and the whole app economy. And I just feel as if really, since I've been in this industry about five years now, um, there it's like every single year we see this dramatic jump and this dramatic jump. And so um, I, I feel as if one way that maybe we're going to really combat this and get more usage is that these devices are ultimately going to be able to do much more than what the preconceived notion of a hearing aid was, right? Mm -hmm. It used to just be a single function device that was an amplification tool. And in a weird way, I think the uh, coronavirus highlights just the type of potential I think that hearing aids in the future could really um, be a part of, which is like maybe it's going to be part of a diagnostic system, you know, an early detection system um, using biometric data, that kind of thing, um, or just notification system, you know, some of the different things that, um, you know, are being introduced today that can help to, um, you know, provide uh, actionable insight gleaned from the data that the, that the hearing aid is capturing and, and just like the different metrics that it's capturing and conveying that to different p- parties that are tied to the primary user. And, and where I'm going with this whole thing is I'm curious to get your thoughts on this idea of, you know, do you feel as if what is happening on the tech side um, Obviously, there's a major role that the the provider is going to play into this as well. But uh, do you see that that we that we kind of are reaching like this momentum on the technology side that's maybe going to in part give rise to a much much more compelling type of device that is more multifunctional. It can support lots of different things that all sort of play into I think this patient demographic that would it would appeal to them when it's broader than just it can help you to hear better if if maybe 
part of the breakdown in, in terms of why the penetration rate is as low as it is, is that the value, the perceived value proposition is um, maybe fundamentally altering right now. Right. And maybe it's not enough for the consumer, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I, I, um, I, I often tell audiologists and hearing instrument specialists that um, they command the most valuable piece of real estate on the body. Yep. And, uh, and they don't even know it. Mm-hmm. So when we look at the ear, um, and my, my colleague and friend Dave Fabry has said that the, the ear is the new wrist, mm-hmm. right? I've heard him say that. Yeah. So, so yeah. And it, and he's, he couldn't be any more correct. Um, so when we look at biometric tracking today of human health, um, you see it focused around the wrist. Um, and so, uh, your Apple watch Fitbit, you know, Garmin, whatever it is that you use is, is what we're using today for biometric information, heart rate. Um, uh, some, there's some, new technology that suggests SPO2 can be pulled mm-hmm. um, using some advanced sensors uh, similar to what heart rate uses. Uh, step counts, activity, movement, caloric, uh, estimated caloric burn, all those different things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in a study that, that was done uh, at Starkey and, and when, I, when I worked at Starkey, I, I was lucky enough to be able to write on this is that um, there's an awful lot of uh, noise that comes from putting your biometric tracker on your wrist. Um, it's it's an appendage. Um, mm-hmm. There there's no better place on the on the body to pull biometric information than the ear. Yeah. Um, your ears are bilateral, so you mm-hmm. can you have two of them. It's easy to do uh, noise reduction in data sets when you have two. Uh, uh, two data sources. So it's very easy to say, look, if, if we detect it very simply, if we detected a step on the left side, didn't detect one on the right side, really we have an arch, right? Because yes. you should see a step register because it's on the midline uh, in both ears. Um, so very basic like that, it's great for error detection and artifact detection. But, but then you start thinking, what gateway to the brain well it's mm-hmm. the ear right mm-hmm. so so how, how we get information into our brain for uh, set for the for two senses that are most important for communication is visually and via and auditorily so you have this great gateway of information processing directly into the brain with the ear um, some other things that are really great we can pull uh, heart rate from the ear the ear is very vascular uh, so it's, it's, uh, while it's not easy, um, you can pull, uh, information like heart rate, SpO2, heart rate recovery, all those different things. Um, there are some studies and I've, and I've given talks about this at, at some academy meetings. Um, there are some really strong studies that show, uh, micro shifts in temperature, um, are excellent, uh, precursor indicators of potential disease. So um, there's a few studies uh, done by Johns Hopkins that show that um, there are micro fluctuations in temperature prior to acquiring the full-blown flu. And as we know, and we've heard this referred to as a million times in the age of COVID, that the flu is, you know, the most deadly virus (laughs) that's out there, which isn't true. Um, COVID actually much more deadly, but but the flu kills a lot of people every year. And if right. we can, um, if we can build up people's immune system, uh, prior to getting a full blown flu attack that leads to pneumonia, which leads to damage to the alveoli and the lungs, which then leads to cardiopulmonary issues. If we can cut that off at the pass and bump up people's immune system and give the immune system a chance to fight it because we detected a micro fluctuation in temperature, five days before a full-blown blown flu attack, we could save hundreds of thousands, if not millions of lives a year. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the best place to take somebody's temperature other than another orifice that's south of it is, 
in their ear canal, right? Um, So you start to look at, you know, plus, you know, you can look at tympanic reflexes. You can look at all of these different things. There's, we can, we can do um, near field recordings of brain uh, function uh, from the ear. Um, So, so you look, what better opportunity in the world do we have to make people healthier with technology than to use the ear? Um, so great real estate spot. And, yes. and it is my belief that because of that convergence of biometrics that occur at ear level, uh, that there's no better place to do that. So now, now we have the best real estate. Now, how do we combine the technology? Now, the technology lags, unfortunately. There's there's two major factors that make it difficult to create a Fitbit right. in your ear that's super effective. And those two factors are microelectronics. So mm-hmm. how do we get the packaging small enough? Because nobody, and we've seen this, right? Nobody wants to wear these big hunking things on their exactly. ear that fall off and they're uncomfortable and everything like that. And the hearing industry has done a really great job of miniaturizing all of this stuff mm-hmm. um, but that comes at cost right so um, while a current hearing aid is a hundred times uh, more powerful in processing than the Apollo guidance computer um, it still lags behind what uh, what an iPhone or an Apple watch or or even your you know your MacBook could process mm-hmm. um, and it does that to to lead to the second problem that we have in hearing which is power Um, so, uh, battery density, so power density and batteries is still not to a point where, um, you can get really high processing levels and processing from multiple sensors. So, um, so things that we're talking about, you know, heart rate, blood pressure, uh, temperature, uh, and process sound and all those things where you can get a full 16 to 20 hour use day off of a really small battery. Mm-hmm. Now, there are a couple hearing aid manufacturers that are bleeding edge on this and they're doing a really good job with some custom instruments that mm-hmm. do a lot. But reality is today is that they're offloading a lot of their true processing to you know a secondary device, phone or an Apple Watch or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, most of the sound processing is occurring at the ear level. But if you, if you talk about the health tracking and data and things like that, that's all being communicated to the device, which is then uploading that information even to the cloud to be processed, you know, with uh, machine learning, artificial intelligence and, and, and done at the cloud level. So, um, so we've got, so the problems we have are today are microelectronic packaging and battery. Um, as soon as those two things are solved, which easy, right? I mean, yeah, easy. fix that tomorrow. Um, as soon as those things are solved, there is no reason why every human being on the planet wouldn't use their ear level for biometric tracking. Mm-hmm. I mean, don't get me wrong. Watches are, are a fashion item. Mm-hmm. Um, so watches are never going away. Um, and you and I know you talk a lot and interact a lot with the folks in the voice community. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I agree with you wholeheartedly that we, rather than using um, manual input devices like keyboards, mice, fingers, you know, stuff right. like that, yeah. that we'll use our voice and even, you know, maybe 50, 100 years from now, we'll use our thoughts to, right. to drive um, uh, user input. Um, but there's really no reason why we would keep biometrics at the wrist when we've got this excellent gateway for communication, biometric information, mm-hmm. everything else that can happen at the ear level. And you're, you're spot on to believe that that's the place that this all is going to go. So I think what's interesting about what you said, I think, first of all, I, I love that framing and I, and I, that's been a mission of mine too, is like, um, I try to make it as apparent as possible that, um, this industry is in it's it this is the best real estate and it's really apparent because look at what the major tech companies are doing there's no it's no it's by no like mistake that apple hit a home run with airpods 
Um, I think that I think all of the money, right? Well, it's like, I think exactly. And I think that you look at where the major tech players are positioning, you know, they're jockeying for right now, whether it be on the interface of the future, I think that that they're looking toward and and I I should caveat that that I don't necessarily think that voice is like going to be the ultimate preeminent like the end all be all I think it's going to be a bigger part of the puzzle and I think AR VR I think these different other emerging technologies I think they're all going to be part of this thing and um but I think that you know what's so interesting to me is that this industry this hearing aid industry this little medical subset mm-hmm. um is playing it's a it's a huge beneficiary of what trillion dollar companies what their R&D departments are are doing and i think that in so many ways and this is just a lot of this is just for me personally and i know you're a fellow tech geek mm-hmm. it's so freaking cool that this is happening to like that we're a part of this that we're there's this giant tidal wave that is forming right now and we're on it you know we're getting to surf this and um i i fully agree with you that there's no better time to be an expert in this particular part of the body and mm-hmm. i think that like one of the messages that I've really been trying to hammer home is this idea that um, every, you know, audiologist out there is an expert in the ear and an expert in treating hearing loss. And I think that there are new opportunities that are starting to arise where you can continue to further your expertise. Um, and in a world full of OTC and all of these things that we hear about, you know, this, the, these sort of existential threats to the industry and to the profession, um, I can't help but think that they're, they're in, insignificant in light of how much expertise you can, you can gather around the biometric side, understanding the voice interface side, understanding you know, how this technology can ultimately um, create a better experience. And, and I go back to the like, you know, Simon Sinek, what is your why, you know? And I feel like if a lot of audiologists were asked that, I think that they would probably land on something that's around like, I want to improve my patient's quality of life. Right. And I think these types of new use cases all tie into that because there are new ways that you can increase the quality of life. And going back to what I was saying before about, you know, the value proposition, I think that it's like you're basically taking the current value proposition that you've been given as a, as a professional and you're now just injecting lots and lots and lots of basically free new value in some capacity, particularly around, you know, the fact that you can now podcast endlessly. You can listen to audiobooks, You can um, access the audio internet. These are content tools in many ways. And they're going to soon become biometric monitors as well. Mm-hmm. And so I look at this as like, what better of a time to be in the position that you're in and and look at it through the lens of that where you might have a patient who is 80 with comorbidities that's completely unaware of the type of biometric monitoring that can be done with this and you have the opportunity to present that use case to them so that of course the main reason why most of these people are coming in to see a provider today is because they want to hear better but if you can ultimately enhance the real true reason why they're coming to see you. I want to like improve my quality of life. I just think that that's such a, it's such an awesome position to be in because there really is like from somebody that's been reading uh, a lot of the tea leaves and, and looking at what's coming based on what's happening in the consumer space, what's happening internationally right now. Wearable technology and particularly earworn wearable technology has some really, really exciting applications and use cases that are seemingly not that far away. Obviously, Mm -hmm. you're right. The battery constraints are going to be a big deal. I hope that through some of the different ways in which the processors and the DSP chips can um, preserve power and better uh, utilize the limited Mm -hmm. power that it has because the battery itself is really tough to innovate on. Um, although you're right, there are some interesting things that are happening in this industry. And then also to your point, you know, you have these, these are, these are like the smallest wearable devices out there, but yet in the first, have, in the I first, mean, hearing aids were the first wearables, they're right? the OG and they're the most sophisticated. <laughs> you know? Yeah. 
And, and, but the cool thing is, is like, you know, just this last year you had uh, Val and Cell and uh, Sunyan, um, they created the first PPG sensor. That's the photoplasmetic optical sensor that can capture a heart rate that was small enough to fit on a receiver in the canal hearing aid. So like we are having like landmark moments happening right now that in 10 years we'll look back on in the same way that we look back on the first made for iPhone hearing aid, we'll look back on the first hearing aid that had a embedded um, you know, optical laser-based sensor that's mm-hmm. capable of capturing these things. And you look at like the first made for iPhone hearing aid is night and day difference between the types of hearing aids that are coming onto the market today. And, and it's, a, it's, it's a standardization of the technology. Everything yeah. is now Bluetooth enabled. And you're seeing there's like, it's taken a while, but now you have the Android side of things catching up too. So that's just a really long-winded way of saying that I see there being so much awesome technology sort of that's like happening and percolating right now. And I feel as if that's not getting enough attention, um, you know, to, to counter uh, the narrative of, you know, we as an industry are, and I know that maybe this is part of like just people inherently, like if it bleeds, it leads, people are really focused on the scary, but I do think that there is a whole lot to be excited about what's on the forefront right now. And it kind of ties into this whole narrative around telehealth too, which is that you can, you can shy away from it. You can just, you know, turn your back on it. But the fact of the matter is, is that it's real. It might not be something that's totally pervasive quite yet, but it's the writings on the wall and you have the opportunity now to really ingrain yourself with how this works and how you feel as if you could implement it. Because to your point, it might not make sense for a lot of the people that you feel need to have that face-to-face consultation, but there are probably some people that this type of stuff would appeal to. Yeah, for sure. And, um, you know, I, in my, in my career, I've had the opportunity to, um, visit a lot, uh, with people in Silicon Valley and in the tech centers of, of the world. And one of the things that remains interesting to me, uh, in, you know, I, I go, I've historically gone to CES and TechCrunch and, and, um, a number of other, uh, tech, big tech conferences where you see the, the bleeding edge technology and you see kind of where that it's a good opportunity to be a trend spotter for the future of tech, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and voice first has certainly been a big leader. Um, Earworn technology has been a big leader, Uh, AR, VR, all those different things. And, and what's funny is that, um, and I'm going to catch hell for saying this, um, Silicon Valley gets hearing wrong so Mm -hmm. much. Yeah. Um, they they look at the technology that companies like um, Starkey and Sonova and and Demont and and WS Audiology and and GN create, and they say, oh well, we you know we can do that. That's easy peasy, no problem. We'll you know we'll have something out to you in three weeks. You know, and and you know you start to talk to some of these folks, um, and. And they start to realize what these devices do and, <laughs> and how they work. Right. So, so the, uh, you know, I've got my AirPod pros, so the battery life is what, uh, maybe three hours. Yeah. I mean, if three, I'm, four if hours I'm lucky. If we're um, talking on the phone. Yeah. Right. Um, actively using them. Right. Um, you look at, you know, your, I feel like my Bose headphones, I'm replacing the, you know, triple a battery in those about once every other day um and then you look at the hearing space and you know our patients are wearing devices uh 18 hours a day Uh, they recharge them once a day or change the battery in them every seven to ten days um they're biocompatible so when they stick them in their ears they don't get hot spots they Mm -hmm. don't get sores they, um, they wear them comfortably so much so that many of our patients end up in the shower by accident with them <laughs> on because yeah. they forget they're on. Um, they uh, are transparent. You know, mm-hmm. Apple released the new AirPods with transparency mode and it, you, you'd swear it was the second coming of, of Jesus. I uh, know. <laughs> uh, they released that. Uh, Rick devices have been had 
you know, audio transparency essentially built right into them since what resound air was, mm -hmm. was released in the, in the mid 2000s. So, um, you know, you start, you talk to these tech folks and, and, and I've had conversations with some of the, you know, some of the really, uh, amazing people and you start explaining to them what it means to have to wear a biocompatible device for 18 hours a day because your communication is is dependent on it mm -hmm. and they start to they start to cycle back the wheels a little bit they, yeah. they lean back a little bit and they say oh well maybe it'll take us five to six weeks instead of two right. to three weeks to develop that technology. And you just, mm -hmm. you wish them well and you pat them on the head. And you, <laughs> you know. But, but it's really true. You know, hearing aids were the first wearables. Uh, I, I joke with, with uh, my colleagues that uh, hearing aids created the first augmented reality. They really did. I mean, you're, you're augmenting your, your hearing loss with amplification uh, while not att attempting, and modern technology is much better at this now, at not running over the top of the things where you don't need to augment, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, it, it, you know, when when some of the first uh, hearables started coming out in wearable technology space, I I was one of the first 50 backers for Bragi, for example. Yeah. I, I caught it on Kickstarter. Uh, I'm like, if they can do half of what they're saying, um, then this is really a game changer. And they actually did. And I was a little disappointed that, um, that the technology didn't take off like I thought it would, but, mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, hearing is hard and, and, and wearing a device in your ear is difficult. And, and so there's this big gap right now between hearable, uh, AirPod, headphone yeah and a hearing aid that's worn all day long uh because it's required for communication there's still a huge gap yep. between these two things and and what i'd like to see is i'd like to see because there are so many people 15 percent of people of adults in the united states have hearing loss because there's such this broad-based uh, need for amplification and, and treating hearing loss. And there's so many negative things that can happen in your life if you don't treat hearing loss that mm -hmm. I would love to see this curve just, I'd love to see it jumped, right? Yeah. There's this, there's this huge chasm right now between consumer electronic technology and hearing technology. Um, and I'd love to see more of the people that are in this doing this and I'd love to see people do that through someone that can help guide them down that path to get the best outcomes. And, and it's my belief that 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 will be needed for, for a long-term future because the technology and the system is complicated and, yes. and get picking the right system and picking the right solution for that person is a, it's a, it's, it requires expertise. I, cannot agree more with you and i think that that is the that is the bull argument for this profession i think i think that there is in my mind undoubtedly going to be a rise in the complexity of the system if you will i think that's a really good way to think about it is that these are going to increasingly become more system based type things whether it be one hardware, one piece of hardware, but a, a system of software, um, or maybe it's just various hardware devices. But I think that this is where the real opportunity I think is going to lie across like the next 10 years is going to be, you know, for the audiologists uh, to be just as well versed as they are in the, uh, the academic and the, um, the true um, you know, the, the field of audiology, but also increasingly in the technology so that you can guide people to your point through understanding in the same way that they do today, understanding what their needs are, but having a really good depth of what's available to them and being able to piecemeal a solution specific to what that person needs. Because I think that that's where this is going, where you have a lot of really, really cool, exciting opportunities. And it's going to be up to the provider, I think, to uh, really configure that system for their patient to say, here are the different aspects of, of what we can provide you with, uh, both through the technology, 
through the way that you wear the technology, um, all of those different things. I, I just think it's a, it's an exciting opportunity ultimately for this profession. Yeah, and and the the way that that gets done might change, and mm-hmm. that's okay. Like, what if you know? What if the audiologist did the thing that they're best at, which is diagnosing, testing, diagnosing hearing loss, um, recommending the best solution for that, um, and helping in the rehabilitative process. Mm-hmm. Um, but mostly just kind of that front end. And then there was somebody else in your office that handled the geek squad type stuff. Right. So, so the way I see this and I've, I've been making these recommendations to our members in odd connects and rising and T is that, you know, focus on what you're best at. Yep. You are best at, um, at, at diagnosing and treating hearing loss. Um, maybe, you know, your, you know, 22 year old son is the best person to have in your office to help with the technology side of things. Totally. So just the basic stuff. So, you know, you think about it this way, there's another, an analogy that I look at here is that you've got an orthopedic surgeon and you have a physical therapist, yeah. right? So the orthopedic surgeon diagnoses that you need, that you have a broken knee and they say, you know, this is the best knee replacement for this type of broken knee. And then they do the surgery and they take out the broken knee and put in a better bionic knee. Mm -hmm. And then they follow up a couple weeks later and they make sure that you don't have any infection and they make sure that the knee piece is working the way it should and that it's flexing appropriately and that it's straight and what they did was good. Mm -hmm. And then what do they do? they send you the physical therapist to begin your rehabilitative process to use that piece. Right. So why is it, why is it that, you know, the person that's involved with the selection diagnosis, uh, implantation, whatever of, of the technology piece that they use in audiology is kind of the start to finish person. And it, it doesn't allow them to focus on, uh, what they're best at. Mm-hmm. And so, so I'd love to see some shift a little bit, you know, it's, it doesn't make sense. And, and I know I'm talking about the medical economics now, mm-hmm. but it, it doesn't make sense for us to pay a doctor of audiology to troubleshoot Bluetooth all day long. Yep. I mean, it, it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Like the audiologist is best at diagnosing hearing loss, recommending the best solution and, and, convincing somebody to make a step towards better hearing, right? The, the consultative approach to, to the hearing management. Um, it doesn't make sense to take somebody that's a doctor of audiology and then turn them into Best Buy's Geek Squad. It yeah. just doesn't. Um, so, so put the people in the roles that are best at addressing the patient's needs. And, and I, I hope that we see our profession shift in that direction in a positive way. Yeah, no, I love that analogy. I've um, <clears throat> I've used the analogy before. I, I think I like your analogy better. The orthopedic surgeon and the physical therapist. We've um, I know I've kicked around the idea before, where it's sort of like um, you know, along the same vein, you go to you go to and you see the dentist, and uh, you have the hygienist that you know does the bulk of the spends the bulk of the time with you cleaning your teeth, and the dentist comes in and they provide sort of that expert opinion. Um, yeah. You know, I think to your point, ultimately what we're getting at is this idea that the audiologist's time is really valuable, and I think it makes a whole lot more sense to maximize the amount of time, and in, we're probably as an industry going to have to get really creative with this, you know, particularly if, um, you know, the uh, the gross margins decline, you know, with the as the products uh, will surely start to sort of depreciate in in the cost, um, and and so I think that it's going to become more of a service oriented profession where you have to figure out a way to unbundle your time and charge for your time in as effective way as possible. And I think that again, going off of this, that it's not as if there's like a shortage of um, need. You know, there's no demand. Uh, shortage, shortage, uh, you know, around this. And in fact, going back, kind of bringing this whole thing full circle, one in five Americans, you know, have hearing loss. Um, 
And I think that number is only going to grow because of the, you know, fact that a lot of us have been listening to loud music for extended periods of time for a while. And, um, and so you have this growing uh, sort of crisis that's unfolding, but you also have a lot of new tools available to you. And I think that these are going to be types of tools that you can harness, whether it be, you know, different types of technology that might really appeal to different subsets of your overall uh, potential patient group, um, but also getting creative with how, like you said, to kind of maximize the provider's time. Um, because I think that if you look at this on the surface, um, there are obviously threats right now uh, to this profession, but at the end of the day, I feel as if it would be way worse if, um, you know, ultimately there's just not that big of a pool of people that need your services. And on the contrary, there's a massive pool of people and it's just a matter of figuring out how do you kind of like appeal to all those people. Right. Right. And I, you know, Jim Collins has been talking about putting the right people on the right seat of the bus, right. (laughs) For many years and, and really around how you run a business, but we should be designing our clinics that way as well. You know, put, put the people in the roles where they do the best work, maximize time and maximize efficiency. And that's, I'll be honest with you, that's where I spend a majority of my time uh, working with ENT clinics and audiology clinics is convincing them to let go of the things that they're not maximizing their time on Mm -hmm. and give that to somebody that can handle that and to focus on the things that they can do best at. Perfectly said. Well, that's, I think, a great way to uh, sort of bring this whole conversation full circle. Um, So as we wrap here, Kyle, uh, why don't you share where people can find you, connect with you, learn a little bit more about, you know, Rise ENT if they're interested in that. Sure. Um, And thank you again for the opportunity to come on and talk a little bit and geek out a little bit. This is fun. uh, Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I'm happy to do it again in the future. Oh, yeah. Need be, but... um, uh, if people want to learn more about Rise ENT, they can go to riseent.com uh, or they can go to oddconnects, A-U-D-C-O-N-N-E-X.com, oddconnects.com. Or if you you just want more information, want to talk to me directly, you can reach out to me at kyle at riseent, R-I-S-E-E-N-T.com. Perfect. Awesome, Kyle. Well, thanks again for coming on the show today. And thanks for everybody who tuned in here to the end. We will chat with you next time. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Future Ear Radio. For more content like this, just head over to futureear.co where you can read all the articles that I've been writing these past few years on the worlds of voice technology and hearables and how the two are beginning to intersect. Thanks for tuning in and I'll chat with you next time.